Hi everyone. Welcome to Real World Parenting, tips and scripts for parents on roads less traveled. I'm Dr. Laura Anderson, a child and family psychologist, and I'm glad you're here. As you settle in to listen, let me reassure you that you are in the right place. If you're a loving parent looking for answers and encouragement, and maybe even a chuckle amidst hard things. If you're a loving parent who's raising a child on a journey different from your own as a child, and are seeking a compass as you navigate uncharted waters. This is the place for you if you get the theory of parenting advice you keep hearing, but for the love of chocolate and curry and all other nearly perfect things, that theory never quite works as planned with your actual children. Finally, you are in exactly the right place if you're a therapist or clinician who works with kids, teens, and families. My intention is that these episodes will deepen your work and change lives. So in this intro, I get two to three minutes here to boil down 30 years of work in my psychology offices and my experience as a mom in the trenches and let you know what I'll offer with this podcast. I almost called it Lessons from Our Living Rooms or Couch Conversations because my offerings will be things I have learned and keep learning from the vantage point of both my living room couch and my therapy office couch. The aim of this podcast is to offer hope, support, wisdom, and experience in community, to provide clinicians a window into what our recommendations actually mean for real families in real life. We will talk all things kid and teen related and shine a spotlight on families navigating identities related to race, gender, and adoption. We will explore common child and adolescent mental health and wellness related topics. The hope is to leave you with a greater understanding of your child's needs and a, you got this, energy. Episodes will also feature actual practical tips and answers to questions including, well, what do I say when and what do I do when, so that you feel equipped to handle the day-to-day parenting puzzles we face. So pour yourself a cuppa or lace up some shoes or hide in your busy parent bathroom for a bit and join me for head and heart conversations about loving and living with children walking past less often traveled. Have I mentioned I'm glad you're here? I trust that you'll be glad. Hi, everyone. I'm so glad you're here checking in on this episode. It is an honor for me to be here today. My friend and colleague, Dr. Patrick Martin, welcome. Hey, Laura. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, I, I'm thrilled. We, we've already been chatting and we already have, I already have several other episodes in my <laughs> going <laughs> forward. So I'd like to start by letting folks know how, how is it? What's, what's your experience that brings you to be here having a chat with me about gender and neurodiversity and assessment? Yeah, well, uh, you reached out a while back and I was like, this is, seems like a really great idea and a way to kind of disseminate information out to folks. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, I'm finally glad that our schedules were able to line up and we can do this and have this conversation. So awesome. And yeah. and you're so you're a psychologist, you do assessments where you don't have to say exactly where in the world you are, but what role are you in professionally? Yeah, so I am in private practice in, in Seattle, Washington, and I'm not quite yet a psychologist. I had my doctorate. I finished up a postdoc and and uh, doing a, a neuropsych certificate, but I still need to sit for the EPPP, which is our licensing exam. Um, and so my time has been spent doing that uh, 
and and trying to get through. So at this point, I'm a licensed mental health clinician in Washington State, but not quite yet a psychologist. Awesome. Well, and that's one of the first questions right out the gate. So we were talking about that. <laughs> I get a lot of, I mean, we have so much, you know, I love us as a profession and we have so much jargon stuff that I don't think we know. necessarily mean to. And I get a lot of parents who come into me and say, they told me I need to get a neurology exam or, and I'm like, you mean a neuro, neuropsychological exam? And they said, yes. What is the difference? You know, and the parents will ask me this, so it's a great place to start. What's what is a neuropsychological assessment? What is the additional training of neuropsychology specifically add to to mental health background in your experience? Yeah, so uh, basically neuropsychology is looking at uh, kind of brain and behavior and, and how our brains function. Um, the training for that is usually after you get your your doctorate in clinical psychology, then you usually go and do a two-year postdoc uh, in neuropsychology, uh, either pediatric or adult. Uh, normally, you have to go to a brick-and-mortar school, uh, meaning that you have to move, uh, which makes it more difficult if, if you have a family and are kind of uh, stationary in a certain city. So fortunately, there are other programs where you can do it kind of more remotely. Uh, and receive supervision. So that's a, a program that I've been involved with um, and finishing up, uh, you know, essentially about a thousand hours of, of uh, um, you know, testing, but then also uh, multiple kind of didactic sessions with the with the professor over two years. Um, yeah. So there's an added layer. And, and I know that sometimes the, the, the words get, get I me, mean, testing gets recommended and not everybody recommending the testing understands the difference between a psychological evaluation and a neuropsychological evaluation. Why might a school system or a pediatrician recommend a neuropsych instead of a classic psychological evaluation or what, what does it add? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So with psychological evaluations, we're, we're primarily looking at emotion and mood. Right, um, and and trying to kind of differentiate and, and use some of the uh, instruments to kind of potentially clarify a clinical diagnosis based upon what we're seeing and based upon the history. Um, so so the the scope of it's more limited. If if we're doing a neuropsych, the, the scope is actually more expanded than that. So yes, you've got the mood, you have the emotion, but we also want to take a look at really important things like memory, uh, verbal ability, uh, processing speed. Um, perceptual ability and and how our brains are wired um, uh, depending on how those pathways are and and what's happened uh, that can shift some of those brain systems and so by using some of the instruments that we have we might be able to get some clarification on on, on people's areas of strengths and also their areas of vulnerability um, and and we all have that um, there, there's yeah, with most of these assessments uh, Kids, it, it's not like a pass-fail. It's not like school uh, where either you pass or you fail, but we're, we're trying to understand uh, where the individual is in comparison to other individuals of their age, educational level, gender, um, and race. Um, and, and so we're kind of looking at more brain systems with that. And by understanding those brain systems, then it's possible to do interventions that will help the person to function better. And if it's a kid, you can do interventions which will help the school, help the parents to interact potentially differently with the child, which then can help to, to uh, 
mitigate the areas of vulnerabilities, but also build up the areas of strengths that everyone has. Um, I, I like to kind of think of uh, the data that we have. It's, it's kind of like you're, you're painting an impressionist. You're, you have like different colors, different dots, and, and each um, each person has kind of a different constellation and, it, and kind of a different profile. Um, and so uh, I, I think that's kind of the, the magical thing because then also you have the data to be able to help um, uh, families advocate for their kids with school systems. Um, and it, it really shifts a lot of the, the, the dynamics, which might help to cut down on, on the child feeling very marginalized uh, or like, hey, what's wrong with me? As opposed to, oh, actually your brain's kind of wired differently or, or maybe you got into an accident and so um, uh, your head got hit. And so as a result of that, you know, different parts of your brain are working slightly differently. And how do we do rehabilitation for that to help try to strengthen those connections? So, um, you know, there, it's just a wide field of, you know, the kind of applications. And and um, obviously I'm biased uh, because I'm in this field. So I think it's like the greatest, um, you know, uh, but I, I think that the more that people can understand their brain functioning, the better off then they can, uh, you know, better understand themselves, but also be able to educate other people on, hey, you know, if we're in a busy place and there's a lot of noise and you're trying to talk to me, I'm not going to be catching a lot of information. So let's have this conversation elsewhere. Um, yeah. So. And that's like yeah. one of the things when I started out doing this work, um, doing a lot of assessments as well, that parents often have a dilemma. And I get it. And uh, like, do we want, if we get an assessment, what if we get a label? Will the label harm my child? Will it hold them back somehow? Because now they have this label and it's a thing and people are going to make assumptions about them. And I'm not, I'm not minimizing that, that labels can get used in unfortunate ways sometimes. I'm not saying that never happens, but by and large over the years, what I've seen is more of what you're describing, that it can almost be a relief for a child to understand like this is not them choosing to be difficult in this area or um you know it's not that they just don't want to pay attention or whatever that that there there are ways to understand why our kids have the strengths and the growth areas that they do right and the need for growth areas that they do and and arming your kid with the information about how they learn best and working toward advocating for themselves is actually a super empowering thing and what i've seen unfortunately otherwise when kids are struggling and and parents are really hesitant about a label if behaviors mood or learning isn't addressed kids get other labels because they struggle they get the informal label of being the difficult kid or the defiant kid or the weird or odd kids so socially, right? They get the they get the informal judgment labels about the behaviors because the teams around them don't have the understanding about about the drivers and how to compensate by leaning into those strengths we establish through these assessments as well. Th does that resonate with what you've seen over the years? Oh yeah, I I think I mean part of it is. Um... I, I I understand kind of the the fear of labels, right? Um, and and uh, but but I'm also aware that essentially labels have been kind of set up as a shorthand 
to help us communicate with each other. Um, I'm also aware that over the years, labels for different things have shifted. I mean, think about, you know, what uh, is kind of classified uh, kind of for for autism and how that has shifted between the DSM-4, DSM-4-TR, DSM-5, DSM-5-TR, you know, and and so as more research comes out, especially with having more neuroimaging and being able to understand kind of brain behavior, those kind of classifications shift, right? And and so in some ways, I mean, labels aren't like, um, I, I don't think of it at, in, in such a concrete structure. It's not like, hey, you know, uh, here's your blood glucose level. You're at 86, right? It's it's nothing like that. We're, we're looking really at a constellation of symptoms. And as kind of ideas and understanding shifts, those also shift. Um, and, and so I, I think to think of the labels in a static as, you have been given this label, this is it, you're doomed for the rest of your life, I think is, is really inaccurate. Um, you know, uh, I mean, it's kind of like for, for people who have like depression, you know, people don't say, I, you know, I am a depression, right? Uh, it's, I have depression. So this is like one component of many different identities that we all embody and carry as we kind of move through life. Um, and, and I have seen a lot of uh, situations where um, you know, the, the kids come in, they're depressed and anxious. And, and as you start to kind of unpack things and really understand what's going on, you know, they're being told like, you know, you're, you're really smart, but you're just not working hard enough. Uh, and, and then to, to go through the diagnostic process and, and to then understand, oh, you, you have an attentional disorder. Um, and or you might also have some trauma because like being ostracized uh, really as as humans, that's like the most horrible thing that can happen is to have that sense of connectedness to others be um, and and to be rejected. I mean, they're they're you know starting to find that the attachment stuff actually lights up the pain parts of the brain and it actually causes physical pain. And they've also have found that by using NSAIDs after you've been, rejected it helps to cut down on on the the pain of being rejected um so you know we're, we're starting to understand more but you know it's it's kind of this multifactorial thing of you know uh, uh interacting with your, your your family with your friends with your community with any academic systems work system etc um and and so i usually have to explain that to families which is like labels are not this static thing and and nor is it necessarily a deficit um everything can be uh potentially harnessed to be an asset um you know it just depends on on the situation yeah um, and that's quite they'll cool. understand the more they can have it they may come across people who, who don't understand right and then and then oh, totally. to yeah. advocate and and um yeah, so it's sort of not right. I full bias acknowledge too. I've done the done assessments and and really truly, the reasons to do them are because what we do in response to clarity helps more, right? I mean, like the more we the more we have ideas about what's driving what a challenge is for a kid. Ultimately, the goal is so that we know how to build the skill that's involved, or we know how to accommodate the right way in a classroom, or teaching you know a certain profile and when you know to the degree that we can be flexible around that stuff and so yeah a nod to assessments and we we were talking beforehand too 
we know each other through the world of sort of gender consultation and stuff. Mm-hmm. We were talking about the concept of minority distress. And so if, if folks are listening in and they're thinking about assessments or neurodiversity and there's a gender piece to it, t- talk a little bit. You, you started to right there say when you experience rejection, when you're not connected with others or made or ostracized in some way, um, that you refer to sort of as a minority stress Say more about how that impacts functioning, brain functioning, and, and um, yeah, what you see in your assessments. Yeah, so, um, I mean, we, we can talk about that through kind of multiple lenses, um, obviously, um, but, but there's the attachment component. And, and really for kids, the most, the most critical attachment is, is with the parents. Um, or the parent or the caregiver, who, whoever is uh, kind of the attachment figure in that child's life. Um, so we have that component. But but then also uh, part of our human development is socialization with peers. And if for whatever reason there's bullying, marginalization, um, un- unfortunately now with, uh, you know, this generation, kids are having to worry about, you know, active shooter situations. Um, you know, and and threats the, to their violent to to their body on on many different levels. Not to mention all of the other you know issues of you know sexual assault, physical assault. You know, so so we're we're kind of you know kids are kind of growing up in this world of of uh, essentially what um, kind of in, in in sociology we would say you know kind of it's the American culture of violence. Uh, that we have here, and and so whenever there's a threat on our our on our well-being that activates certain hormones and and our neuroendocrine system, which increases our cortisol level. Now, the problem with having that happen is that cortisol actually acts um, uh, in a uh, not great way for the brain. And and so we've seen this in like people who have like PTSD, they have a, re- a reduction in the hippocampus volume size. And and part of that, it, it, that's hypothesized that the cortisol actually causes the neurons to, to to, to shrink, um, uh, which, and, and the hippocampus is, is important because that's part of our working memory. That's kind of where we kind of stash stuff and, and before we shift it into long-term memory. And so then that can impact functioning. Um, and, and so having cortisol uh, running around uh, due to many different reasons is not good for, for brain health uh, in short. Um, yeah, and it's I think to see how that what it's like. No, you can see what a cycle that is, right? So if you're thinking about a kid yeah. who's who's struggling either academically or socially or or navigating a minority identity broadly in the world in places that are unsafe, um, that 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 is going to increase cortisol, which increase you know which impacts brain functioning, which often leads to less success in those areas because you're less available for for learning and social exchanges. And so it, it's sort of that that loop around that kind of thing, right? Like it, they feed into each other, unfortunately, and and build. Yeah, and, and, and then you throw in different other variables, such as poverty, um, uh, throwing in, um, uh, you know, essentially adverse childhood experience and so forth, ACEs. Uh, that you know the Kaiser Family Foundation's done done a lot of research on, which is essentially the more ACEs you have, you're going to have a harder time. There's going to be more long-term outcomes uh, of of problems. Um, 
and and there was actually a, a longitudinal. I mean, I think part of the the problem in our, our field is we don't really have a lot of longitudinal data on things because just how the system is set up and trying to get funding, et cetera. But there was a longitudinal study that came out of England um, that looked at people who were bullied when they were uh, in elementary school. And then they tracked them for, I believe, 40 years. And, and what they found is that the people who were bullied um, had higher incidences of substance use. They were that lower SES. They weren't functioning. And, and so really showing that these peer interactions that happen are super critical and, and potentially lay the foundation for other issues to come, which potentially could then cause more um, uh, difficult experiences um, that that then impact functioning, you know, not just short term, but also long term. Um, uh, as well as, I mean, unfortunately, how our society is set up now is that we, if there's a behavior that's seen, we blame the individual for that. We aren't really looking behind the scenes to see what are other factors going on, because usually when you do that, um, uh, the, the behavior in this in the context makes sense um, after you take a look. And and so, and I think that that's part of, uh, you know, what I've seen a lot of is people really jump to conclusions. People want answers and, and but but they don't know, they're, they're not taking the time to check to make sure that what they are assuming is actually correct uh, based upon all of the available data, um, which then, you know, uh, as humans, um, you know, it, it's it's hard on the self to be like seen as a bad person, right? Quote unquote bad, because um, essentially, you know, we have this this kind of moralistic value system in our culture. Either you're good or you're bad, right? Um, and, which is part of why I appreciate like the DBT model, which is behavior is behavior. It's not good or bad. It's just behavior. Uh, and so, how do we understand that behavior and understand? What happened before and then what happened after and are there things that can be done to shift that so that you know um you know the uh, the child is not hanging off at the school lights um you know at recess you know or, or whatever it is yeah, yeah. so and so if you're a parent right and then and and i'm hearing that like oh gosh my kid does get bullied oh gosh my kid does have trouble in school I mean, we can't, this is one of those things that's interesting, right? As parents, we can't take away all those stressors. I wish, I wish no. we'd figure out a way to get rid of the drills in schools these days. And we can't. What, what can, what can parents do? So I'm thinking about if you're a parent listening to this, finding, getting an assessment, right? Don't let the labels scare you away from understanding more about what your child or the potential for a label because this is what I hear from parents a lot scare you away from understanding how your child learns and and also the I think sometimes parents feel that the label is one piece but also I don't want my child to think they're broken in some way I don't want them to feel studied I don't want them to feel like less than because they have to go to these specialists and I'm like again there's an invitation to think about it as um building skills for your kid, helping your child understand themselves, advocate for themselves and figure out um, how to see their own strengths and set them work with teams around them to get there faster, right? To be able to maximize those things. So assessment's awesome. Anything else you can think of, like takeaways for parents in terms of understanding that, that um, 
minority stress or being targeted or picked on or different from other kids can impact anything that comes to mind that you'd offer parents in light of what you know about how that impacts functioning? Um, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but um, before I, I yeah. kind of go into that, I'm, I'm just thinking about the term that you used to broken. it. Um, and, and that really creates a, a this this kind of dichotomous idea that people are either broken or fixed. From what I've seen, that's not that that's not reality, right? I, I, I would I would advocate instead of a broken or fixed component, that there's actually a huge spectrum of variability and, and diversity, which is part of what I, I think makes kind of um, being a human and humaning really cool because there's like so much diversity and differences. And and so um, the, the labels, I mean, it was started as a short-term wave for clinicians to talk to each other, yeah. but then it kind of got colonialized courtesy of the insurance industry um, and, and trying to pigeonhole people into things and saying, if you have this symptom, but not this symptom, we'll cover. And, and so again, all of that's tied into the insurance reimbursement, a bunch of other stuff that it doesn't necessarily translate over to, uh, kind of the, the, the human phenomenological experience. Um, and, and so I, instead of broken and fixed, I would say we're on a spectrum and, and really the issue is in comparison to other people also on the, on that spectrum. Where, where are you in relationship and and where where can you totally rock out and where are you going to struggle and then how do we support that um i i appreciate seligman's uh thoughts on uh an advocation for positive psychology which is instead of you know what's broken let's fix you uh, you know what are you doing great and how do we build that up and so i think there is a way to find a balance in that um, and, and so I just want to kind of do that kind of a kind of clarification there. Thank you. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, people don't have to accept that, but you know, that's yeah. just what I've been seeing clinically and how I'm currently understanding things. Yeah, I, I, I think, I mean, most important is the child's connection to the adults. So I think being able to look at what is happening with through an, an attachment lens, because we're also finding that attachment. So like getting yeah, I, I, I think, I mean, most important is the child's connection to the adults. So I think being able to look at what is happening with through an, an attachment lens, because we're also finding that attachment. So like getting what I like to call huggles, so hugs and cuddles, you know, that sensory thing releases oxytocin. It creates a sense of calmness and you can actually see the nervous system kind of chill out. Um, and, and so I think whatever can be done to increase the attachment uh, between, uh, you know, the, the, the caregiver and the child is, is super critical. And I, I won't go into, you know, essentially kind of uh, what we learned courtesy of uh, Ceausescu's regime and what happened with all of the kids there uh, in the orphanages. But we can see that, you know, not having that physical contact early on in life really causes massive neurological, social, et cetera, uh, differences. Um, so yeah, so I think attachment's really important. I, I think also, um, trying to create a, a, a way to communicate with each other. I mean, so we use language and, and here's the thing is, is we all assume that everyone thinks the same way we do. Right. And, and so if I were to say the word cat, 
um, you know, it might evoke a positive feeling for you, Laura, but, you know, maybe I got attacked by a cat when I was a kid and I'm like, oh my gosh, I need to stay away. So language is a subjective construct and it, it, and it evokes different emotions. And so I think, you know, for parents to kind of uh, be curious about when their child says something, instead of, you know, kind of taking it at face value to really kind of go a level below. And what does that mean for you? How does that feel in your body? And which will also kind of model for the child how to hook up emotions with the physical senses um, uh, and, and how the body feels, which a lot of times can be kind of a split in that, uh, especially after trauma. Um, so, so there's that. There, there's also um, things like uh, kid power, uh, which is a way to empower kids uh, to be able to advocate for themselves all the way from you know, just kind of simple stuff all the way up to how do you get away from someone if they're they're trying to hurt you. Um, and, and because that was so successful and, and there's research out there on that, uh, they've also expanded that to adults because part of it is if we don't learn these skills when we're kids, because for whatever reason, our family was not able to provide that, then, then it, it's incumbent upon us to learn that as adults. Yeah. Um, you know, and depending on families and, and, and history and a bunch of other stuff. Um, you know, we, people come into being parents with a kind of different, you know, toolkits. Yeah. Um, and, and, and really what we're seeing because the attachment is so important the, for the parent to be able to figure out how to have a goodness fit with the child, uh, is, is really important. And so the parents trying to connect one way and the kids connecting a different way, there's not connection that's happening. Um, and, and so, you know, being able to uh, ask, well, what does that mean? What what does that feel like for you? Um, how do you think about that? Can potentially help to bridge that gap and and, and also increase attachment. Um, yeah, that's so. But no, um, that's uh, I really appreciate that. Like that that staying connected, trying to understand what your kid needs and how they're communicating it, and. And with the, and this is a whole other episode, and already we're running out. I'm going to have to wrap up, and I want to have a whole other conversation <laughs> about it. But if you were yeah. parenting, because a lot of the parents who check in here are also parents who are parenting kids with protected identities or different identities. So if you're protecting a gender or parenting and protecting, hopefully, a gender expansive kid, um, kid who's navigating racial identities um, that are not in the majority where they are. There's tremendous power in connection, advocacy, safety, not minimizing, not deflecting, um, learning more about what your child is experiencing and preparing them to be able to go forward. And um, and that that is also cortisol reducing, knowing that you have your parents' support in these things, figuring figuring things out, standing with folks in the face of of things they're trying to clarify. Um, and other intersecting identities is is tremendously healing and supportive. Yeah, uh, um, and and something else to consider is like when we're activated, when our sympathetic nervous system, our fight or flight, is elevated and cortisol is surging, our brain has more difficulty learning. And so, whatever can be done to mitigate that, either you know, at home, at school, whatever, that creates a, a better window for the child to be able to learn whatever it is that they're learning. Um, and and so, um, that would be kind of a, a different angle on on really why uh, trying to help the child to feel safe and secure is is really important. 
um, you know, in addition to the child's mental health, <laughs> that it will help them to learn and 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 to be in school. Um, so yeah, and and I'm I'm just thinking about how kids today are really savvy. Like they they are are on top of things and they are talking with each other about things. Um, uh, I, I know that we have to wrap up, uh, but there, uh, Anna Young Brewer, uh, she was a psychologist. Uh, she kind of coined the term childism. Um, and I've kind of used her model as a way to kind of think about things, which is in some ways being a child is similar to sexism and racism. It's, it's a form of oppression, right? Um, because if, if as adults, we went to a, a work and we were physically harassed, um, you know, uh, groped, sexually touched, told that we were stupid, uh, you know, at least hear, you know, corporal punishment if we did something wrong, essentially being beaten um, for for misbehavior, um, we, that would result in a lawsuit uh, and, and, and firing. But kids don't have that political power. And so it's really incumbent upon the parents to be able to to advocate for their kids. But but I think if you know, I, I think the shift of seeing kids and the environment that they're going into through that lens of childism. Yeah. Um, and and would that be acceptable as, you know, for us adults? And if we say no, then we really need to start thinking about things differently and, and how to sh- change the system or try to find better placements for that child. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I'm going to have to have you back. I already have a bunch of different questions. Okay. But, okay, cool. uh, Let's no, do it. I really, yes, we will do it again. It's easy. I always be like, hi. But yeah, the uh, thank you, thank you, and thank you for the parents who have you know more understanding of what you're assessing and how it adds and and yeah, cortisol and learning and what is within our control as parents is how we're showing up in attachment. What the services we seek, the what language we use to talk to our kids and the schools, the the way that we are. uh, what what was the word you used? I was going to say snuddling, but that didn't sound right. Oh, oh huggles. Huggles. Hugs and cuddles. Huggles is yeah. a lot better than snuddling. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, lots of those. We'll leave folks with that note. An invitation to, to huggle and in whatever way, whatever way works for your kids. Like, what's their love language? How do they feel seen and safe and supported by you? And it's huge. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if you get questions, I'm happy to brainstorm with you, Laura. Right. Um, Awesome. And, uh, we'll, yeah. we'll include information on how folks can find you in the show notes and things. And I would love to have you back, Patrick. Thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, totally. And we can do epigenetics and family and the transmission of intergenerational trauma. I mean, yes. hey. Yes. Oh, yes. That, yeah. Okay. Good times. <laughs> but yes, no, I would love to have conversations about that because we just, I, it's huge. I learn every day. So yeah. Thank you. Isn't it cool? Thank you. Yes. All right. Well, thanks for listening today. Just a quick note here at the end to say I am so glad you joined and I hope you are too. And if you'd like to connect with me more, come take a look at my website, www.drlauraanderson.com. There you can join my newsletter, keep in touch and find out what is in the works. You can also join me for coffee and conversation uh, and Facebook at Common Cord Psychology Services. So check me out those places and I look forward to further connection. I'm glad you were here today.